Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 10 of the Crime Bistro Podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a hot coffee with almond milk, so grab yourself a fresh brew and let's get into the bizarre vanishing of Brandon Swanson. Brandon Swanson grew up in Marshall, Minnesota, and as a teenager, he loved the landscape of his town and the surrounding area. One of his favorite things to do was to drive the desolate back roads, and he especially loved to see the wind turbines that dotted the land. He was passionate about protecting the environment and a supporter of renewable energy sources. He graduated from Marshall High School in 2007, enrolling at the local community college to study the wind turbines. The school had a program for wind energy technology. This college was located in Canby, which was about a 40-minute commute from his home in Marshall, a quick drive down State Highway 68. On Tuesday, May 13th of 2008, a 19-year-old Brandon visited with some friends in Lind, Minnesota, which was about 10 miles south of his Marshall hometown, to celebrate the ending of the school year and have some drinks together. Brandon had just finished his first year of college at Minnesota West Community and Technical College earlier that same day. Brandon left the party between 10.30 and 11 p.m., driving to another friend's house in Canby to say goodbye to one of his classmates. He had an additional shot of whiskey at this home, leaving some time after midnight to head back home to Marshall, Minnesota, where his parents' house was. Despite the fact that he had been drinking that night, his friends at the party in Lind reported that he had not seemed intoxicated, so no one was worried about him making the drive home. The drive from Canby to Marshall is about 30 minutes directly on Highway 68, however, for whatever reason, Brandon veered from this typical route on this particular trip. Around 1.15 a.m. on May 14th, Brandon got his car stuck in a ditch along a gravel road. He attempted to call his friends for help, but none of them answered, so he decided to call his parents, Brian and Annette Swanson, at 1.54 a.m., telling them that he really needed them to come and pick him up. He told them on the phone that he was in Lind, which is only about a 10-minute drive to Marshall, and he described the road that he was on, also mentioning that he had not been injured in the accident. And this is a point that I'm going to drive home several times in this episode. However, picture the scenario for a second. Brandon's parents knew that he was going to a party that night, probably assuming that he was going to be drinking at least a little. I'm sure that this crossed their minds when they picked up the phone, but they immediately noted that he sounded completely coherent, which is consistent with everything that his friends have described as only light drinking, if even at all, that night. When his parents arrived at the location that Brandon had described, they could not find him anywhere. Not to mention anything else, there were no street lamps or other cars to even be seen. And Lind was an extremely small town of only 400 people at the time, so the intense darkness should have meant that Brandon's car would be relatively easy to spot, even from a distance away. On the phone, Annette and Brandon agreed to flash their lights to let one another know where they were. Annette even mentioned that she could hear clicks over the phone from Brandon flashing his lights at one point, but they never saw each other. On the call, she kept repeating, we're flashing our lights, to which Brandon replied, don't you see me? By this time, on both ends of the phone, they were getting extremely frustrated with the situation, and Brandon ended up hanging up on his mother. She quickly called him back, and he apologized for the high tensions between the two parties. Brandon offered another solution to his mother for this puzzling situation, 
Once it became clear that they were not going to be able to see each other, he said that he could see the Lind Town lights, so he was going to walk towards town and that his parents could meet him at a tavern parking lot once he got there, and he stayed on the line with them this whole time. This was a freezing Minnesota night, and Brandon was only wearing a t-shirt and jeans, but he decided that he would be fine until he was finally able to find his parents, despite their efforts to convince him not to venture out into the dark. While he was walking, Brandon told his parents that he was going to cut through some fields in order to make the trip back to town quicker, mentioning that he was walking on gravel roads, that he saw multiple fence lines, one that he even had to climb over, and even that he heard running water at one point. After about 47 minutes on the phone together, just before 2.30 a.m., Brandon all of a sudden yelled, Oh, and the call immediately disconnected. Brian Swanson said that it sounded like his son had maybe slipped and fell, so they immediately dialed him back, but Brandon never answered his phone, and he has not been heard from or seen since. His parents kept trying to call the phone, and it did ring every time, however, with no answer. At the very least, his parents were hoping to see the light from his flip phone somewhere, but they never did. This would continue until days after Brandon went missing when the calls started going straight to voicemail, and it was assumed that the battery in the phone had died. After losing the call, Brandon's parents drove up and down the dark roads for some time, hoping to catch a glimpse of him, but saw absolutely nothing. And this is hard to confirm based on the source material I have seen, but some sources mention that Brandon's father reached the tavern parking lot that Brandon had told him to meet at, but not finding any trace of him, they continued to drive around and search. They also called some of Brandon's friends, but he had not reached out to anyone. Brandon's parents reported him missing at 6.30 a.m. to the Lind Police Department, and the police actually told them to wait a little while since Brandon was an adult, even going so far as telling them that adults have the right to go missing. While it is understandable to not immediately raise alarm bells for a college student who isn't answering their phone after a night with friends, this is slightly frustrating to me given the situation at hand. Brandon clearly didn't want to go missing, and he had already placed several calls to his friends and the lengthy call with his parents trying to indicate where he was. The search for Brandon began at around 8 a.m. on the 14th, not too long after his parents initially called, and the police started the search in Lind, driving the same roads that Brian and Annette had, hoping that the daylight would reveal something they couldn't have seen earlier, but found absolutely no trace of him. This was until later that day when Brandon's phone records revealed something extremely strange. Brandon's phone showed that he was actually near Taunton, Minnesota and not Lind when he had called his parents the night before, and Taunton is along Highway 68 between Canby and Marshall, about 25 miles away from Lind, much closer to Brandon's college than it was to Brandon's home in Marshall. Using the phone records, police were able to locate Brandon's Chevrolet Lumina sedan, which was found at 2.30 p.m., about a mile and a half north of Taunton, on the border between Lincoln, Yellow Medicine, and Lyon counties. The car itself, just like the phone pings, was about 30 miles away from where Brandon said that he was. There was no physical damage to the vehicle or evidence of any bodily injury to Brandon, but the doors had been left unlocked and the keys were missing. Lincoln County Sheriff Jack Vizecki told CNN, quote, It was off the side of a field approach, and the vehicle was hung up. 
It's sort of a sharp incline, nothing major, but enough that the car would get hung up so the wheels are too high off the ground to get any traction, end quote. Essentially, this means that Brandon's car was stuck in a ditch, exactly as he had told his parents it was, which immediately negates the possibility of his car being moved, but no one could tell why Brandon thought that he was in Lind that night. Remember, this was in 2008, and Brandon only had a flip phone, so there wasn't any sort of navigation he had access to that anyone knows of, but still, he was a long way off. Oddly enough, the car was found in an area where only one red light could be seen, and this was coming from a green elevator in Taunton, so the lights that Brandon described seeing would point him to a town are unexplained. There were also no tracks found in the area around the car, so there was no way to tell which direction Brandon had started walking in. Brandon's parents have actually organized several of their own searches comprised of volunteers in addition to the efforts by law enforcement. These consisted of groups usually around 30 volunteers, assisted by Human Remains Detection, or HRD, dogs, and the most recent search was conducted on May 12th to 15th of 2011. Emergency personnel and law enforcement used walkers, boats, horseback, helicopters, and all-terrain vehicles to search areas in Lincoln, Lyon, and Yellow Medicine counties. All of it was in a 122-square-mile search area radius. They also searched bodies of water, including the Yellow Medicine River. While this was already a daunting search area, there were a few factors that made it more difficult, explained in the following quote from the family's blog posts from 2010. Quote, one of the main reasons why this is such a difficult search lies in the fact that the region receives nearly constant winds, which can come from any direction. These winds move scent from the source and deposit it into scent pools, such as windbreaks around farmsteads, tall grass and CRP land, and along ditches and creeks. When the dogs alert on an area of hot scent, it is often very difficult to differentiate whether we are near the remains or searching yet another scent pool. End quote. The same post also mentions the possibility that predators such as coyotes could have scattered any remains, which would only add to the challenge that tracking or cadaver dogs were facing. There's also a heavy amount of farming in the area, so farming activities such as hay baling could have moved around any possible evidence of Brandon. In addition to all of this, the searchers also ran into access issues. Quote, we can't search everywhere we would like to search. We are very careful to protect landowners' property and have generally avoided searching fields with crops in them, even though there is a fair chance that Brandon ended up in a field, end quote. And this last point is especially important, since on the phone with his father, Brandon mentioned a number of fences, which could absolutely suggest that he was on someone's property at one point. There is a preliminary theory outlined by the family's posts that, quote, Brandon attempted to seek shelter from the wind near the end of his journey and crawled into an outbuilding or under old machinery and perished there. Because we are trying to avoid disrupting landowners' lives as little as possible, we have only searched a few farmsteads, end quote. Authorities, especially the county sheriff, Jack Vizecki, believed that Brandon fell into the Yellow Medicine River and subsequently drowned and he even searched the riverbanks personally, walking up and down them each day for about a month. This scenario would have explained what his parents heard over the phone that sounded like him falling. However, search dogs tracked Brandon's scent along a three-mile trail to the river's edge, 
then continued walking on, down another gravel road, ending abruptly in a field, which suggested that had Brandon fallen into the river, he most likely got out and continued walking. This trail did make sense, as it was heading in the direction of the light from the grain elevator. However, consider as well the possibility of the earlier described scent pools possibly playing a role in what the dogs were chasing. Police searched far down the banks of the river, however, they were surprised to not find a single trace of Brandon anywhere, expecting at least to find a shoe or other article of clothing, if not his body. Had Brandon fallen into the river, the temperature that night was around 39 degrees, so they believe it is possible that after falling into the river, Brandon succumbed to hypothermia somewhere in the area. The search expanded drastically in the coming days, with search and rescue dogs arriving from the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and a team from Texas even brought a remote control plane and underwater sonar equipment scanning the riverbed. On the third day of searching, police determined a new search area after they discovered that Brandon's final phone call was made from within a five-mile radius of the tower that picked it up. But even with this new information and all of the volunteers and additional help, no trace of Brandon turned up. Cadaver dogs did pick up the scent of human remains a few times, specifically in an area north of Porter near Mud Creek, but no body has ever been found, and the dogs lost this trail fairly quickly. Police also searched almost, if not all, of the abandoned buildings in the area, finding no trace of Brandon or even any of his belongings. There is no evidence of foul play, and police don't currently believe that Brandon's body is within their search area at all. The police set up an anonymous tip line to try and generate any information that they could, receiving over a hundred calls, none of which provided any solid leads. Eventually, the search for Brandon was suspended as the summer of 2008 came to a close, as the case had essentially gone cold by that time. By this point, the search efforts were being conducted in a manner that is known in the search and rescue community as a limited continuous search. These types of searches are generally only successful when there is a good search plan in place, so the search plan for Brandon included an outline of the search beforehand in a public meeting, as well as debriefings after each search to review the results and devise a plan for the next search based on any theories that may have arisen. While this is a very highly effective method of searching, there was still just no trace of him to be found. In 2010, the authorities handling Brandon's case decided to hand it off to the Statewide Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, hoping that their additional resources would be helpful in some manner. Since then, the river has been searched over a dozen additional times by different parties, with still no evidence being recovered. The Bureau has received over 75 new tips since 2010, but nothing that has proven helpful. This case is incredibly bizarre, so without any evidence pointing in any particular direction, there are a lot of theories that have risen about Brandon's disappearance. Volunteer firefighter Darren Delzer put forth his own theory regarding Brandon's vanishing, based on several things that he had to note about the case. Delzer said that Brandon was legally blind in his left eye and that he always wore glasses, however his glasses were left behind in his car. He also reported that right before Brandon yelled and the call dropped, he had also said, quote, not another fence, end quote, which led Delzer to suggest that he had fallen into an unmarked cistern or well, which are not uncommon in rural areas, which this absolutely was. Another interesting possibility is that Brandon fell into a sinkhole, 
which are apparently relatively common in Minnesota, and they can measure up to 60 feet deep, but there was no visible evidence of a sinkhole collapse, and they are much less common in the southwestern part of the state where Brandon went missing. There are a few things that I want to mention with this theory pertaining to Brandon's glasses. Being legally blind, why wouldn't Brandon have brought his glasses with him to walk through the dark and the dead of night in an area that he didn't know at all? This makes no sense unless he was impaired in some way. However, his friends from the party insisted that he wasn't intoxicated, and his parents again reported that he seemed completely normal on the phone. It has been suggested that he was using back roads in order to avoid DUI checkpoints, but he was clearly at least lost in some capacity, so it is difficult to put forth any explanation as to why he wasn't using a highway. Personally, my first thought was to assume that Brandon hit his head somehow in the crash, and that his confusion was the result of a concussion. However, that also fails to explain why he was so lost, and there wasn't any indication on the car that he had been injured, not to mention he did tell his parents that he hadn't been hurt in any way. Another theory, as mentioned, relies on the assumption that Brandon fell into the river water, either climbing back out or drowning. The current was very strong, picking up after all of the recent snow melting, and the water was only about 15 feet deep. However, this is unlikely for a couple of reasons. First, Brandon's phone was working after his parents were disconnected the first time, which suggests that it hadn't been submerged in the water at all. Had the phone not gotten wet, it would have had to have fallen on the embankment somewhere, in which case it is likely that search teams would have come across it at some point if Brandon had died in the water. If Brandon had made it out of the water, his parents were frantically calling his phone, so it is likely that he either would have found it from the sound or from the phone lighting up, considering everything else around it would have been incredibly dark, not to mention he probably would have been searching for it once he came out of the river. Brandon's mother, at least at the time, also didn't believe that he fell into the river, because there was also a dog who tracked his scent to an abandoned farm. Although there isn't any way to confirm that this also wouldn't tie back to scent pools, and the probability that Brandon's scent wasn't moving with the wind. This was also a relatively small river, and it was searched extensively, with authorities never finding any trace of Brandon, so no one could prove that he was ever in or even near the river at all. Another theory suggests that he was attacked by an animal. Black bears are pretty common to the area, but this would have left behind a clear evidence trail of ripped clothing or other things left behind. It has also been suggested that Brandon may have had some kind of mental breakdown or been struggling with mental health issues that caused him to act in an unprecedented manner or to become confused about where he was. However, his parents spoke on the phone with him for almost an hour, and they said that he seemed entirely lucid and aware, and he also didn't have any history of mental health issues that could be predictive of an episode. As is the case with many missing persons investigations, there is always the possibility that Brandon orchestrated his own disappearance, leaving of his own accord and starting a new life somewhere else. With Brandon in particular, this seems extremely unlikely, considering he had attempted to call his friend several times, and the length of time that he spent on the phone with his parents. If that was his plan, this is definitely an odd way to go about it, because he gave the impression that he wanted to be found. There is also no contextual backing for this theory. Brandon was seemingly very happy, he had just finished his first year of college, and he had a lot of friends to celebrate with. 
There isn't any indication that he wanted to disappear or that he had any reason to, and neither the police or his family believe that this is the case. There are some explanations that rely on foul play, suggesting that Brandon was either hit by a car and a panicked driver disposed of his body in the river, or even that he was killed by a landowner that he had been trespassing on their land. Authorities can't rule out either of these possibilities, but again, there is no evidence to support anything of the sort transpired. Even with all of these theories, there really isn't anything that we know for sure. Could Brandon have found his way to an abandoned barn and fallen victim to some sort of foul play? Sure. Could he have fallen into the river and succumbed to hypothermia? Sure. Could he have stumbled into an unmarked well into the darkness? Sure. The only thing that we know, even as of today, is that Brandon had somehow gotten very lost on that night, and after that, it's anyone's guess. Authorities tend to believe that what happened to Brandon was some sort of tragic accident rather than something sinister, which seems plausible, but there is simply nothing to support or refute this assumption. Considering how long it has been without a glimpse of him, and the fact that the search is restricted by private properties, I sadly doubt that we will reach any sort of conclusion in Brandon's case, however, for the sake of his family, I will always hope that there is some sort of hope of closure. Brandon's family has made a great impact both in searching for their son and in being active with law enforcement, especially in coining Brandon's Law. Brandon's Law was established by Brian and Annette Swanson in the wake of their son's disappearance, and it was sponsored by House Minority Leader Marty Seifert and Senator Dennis Fredrickson. It was signed by Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty on May 7th of 2009, taking effect two months later on July 1st of 2009, 14 months after Brandon disappeared. This law requires law enforcement to take a missing person's report without delay after being notified of someone missing under dangerous circumstances. The law applies no matter the person's age, meaning law enforcement must immediately conduct an investigation to determine if someone is missing, if they are possibly in danger. Additionally, authorities have to promptly notify all other law enforcement agencies of the situation. However, the agency that took the report will remain the lead agency in the investigation, also according to the law. This law was suggested as a direct result of Brandon's parents' initial attempt to report him as missing, where police assumed that they were simply being overprotective and that nothing bad had happened to their son. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is still taking any information that people have to offer regarding Brandon's case, and they can be contacted at 877-996-6222 or emailed at bca.coldcase at state.minnesota.us. The search fund for Brandon is still open at the Bank of the West in Marshall, Minnesota, and that information can be found at the family's blog, which will be listed in the show notes for this episode. There is an answer out there, and I do sincerely hope that the family can find something to point to one of the theories we discussed. However, if not, at least future families will fall under the protection of Brandon's law and receive the proper immediate assistance in searching for their loved ones. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you are interested in learning more about Brandon's bizarre case, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. Personally, there is no one theory that I lean towards in this case. There are just too many open-ended questions and too many different possibilities to consider. But if you have a theory of your own to share, 
feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and see some behind-the-scenes updates on the episodes to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time!